The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Pray with me. Holy God, you sent your Son... God the Son, you sent Him to earth to take on a body. And He walked to the earth as a grown man, fully obedient to the law, perfect in every way, holy and righteous through and through. And yet He walked the road to Calvary out of the city to where the accursed and defiled are burned under Your wrath. He stood silent as a sheep before its shearer, before its slaughterer, and was led out and hung up on a cross cursed by God outside of the city. And God, I pray that You would cause that to live in us and then You would call us to walk that same road out of the city to another city, a lasting one. That road leads to the cross, though, Lord, and I pray You would take us to it and You would cause us to melt before it and You would... In it, show us a marvelous Savior and by that means, drive sin from us. Drive all impurity and all defilement from us. Make us a people not just holy in standing before You, but holy in living before You. And God, would You do that by the power of the Gospel? We are not under law Thank goodness. We are not under law as a mechanism to bring about righteousness. We are under the Gospel as a mechanism to bring about righteousness. So take us to the cross. Drive sin out of us and make us a people holy and pure in Your eyes. A people who see and seek another city with another king, another life. Make us to be that kind of people, Lord. And use this passage this morning from the book of Deuteronomy. Use it as it speaks across the centuries to us about sexuality and marriage. Cleanse us, purify us in this area of our lives that we would be a people holy to You. And enable us to meet this righteous requirement of the law by the Gospel. Living in us calling us to hope in a hope that is great. Set up by one who walked the road out of the city 
to the cross. To do that in our midst here this morning by the power of your spirit using your word for the glory of your son and the good of your people, your church. I pray this in his name. Amen. As we've been working through this book of Deuteronomy, we've seen how the last ten chapters, God's been giving us specific instruction, specific stipulations and rules and laws that were to govern this new country of Israel that he's forming here. They are becoming a civil entity, and for a number of chapters now, he's been spelling out specific civil laws that are all applications for that time and that place of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, which we saw back in chapter 5. Over the past couple of weeks, in chapter 21 and the beginning of chapter 22, we were primarily dealing with the Sixth Commandment, expanded and applied in that particular setting. You shall not murder, or positively stated, you shall protect and preserve and establish and bless and provide for the life of your neighbor, the life of others. In the context of chapter 22, what we saw that meant is that we are forbidden from ignoring the need of other people. Remember, three times we saw, you shall not ignore, you shall not ignore, you shall not ignore what those around you, what others have need for. But instead, you shall see it and living in love for them, lay down your life to bless them and provide life for them. That's what God expects of his people. He expects us to be like that, to reflect him, because that's what he's like. He is a God who loves other people and is sacrificing and laying down of his life for them and wants us to be like that too. But not just by trying harder to be loving or by sucking it up and making that difficult sacrifice. He has another mechanism. That, that sacrifice, recall, it, calls, it comes from love in the heart for this other person. And that love is produced, remember we went to Colossians chapter 1, where it specifically states that love comes from, there's a, there's a sequence here, comes from hope. A hope held out for you, Christian, held out for you in heaven, of which, another step in the sequence, of which you have heard about in the gospel. So work it backwards. The gospel reminds us of the hope that has been won and is kept for us in heaven. And it transforms us on the inside, makes us loving people who then live sacrificing for others. That's the mechanism, not a mechanism of law and punishment. The mechanism of the gospel that changes us and transforms us and makes us a loving, sacrificing people. Last week or this week makes us a sexually faithful and pure people. The second half of chapter 22. So again this week we come to this good and precious law of God and expect to find in it much that is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. A righteousness that is actually possible for us because we are no longer under the mechanism of the law but under the mechanism of the gospel. So we're going to go towards that again today in the second half of Deuteronomy 22. So I'm going to read the passage. But let me say up front here that this is another one of those passages that as we read it, I, I imagine that there are going to be some of us who are going to kind of pause at some spots and say, what? It's going to challenge us and cause us to, to ask some questions because there are some interesting things here, particularly for us in our day and age to look at and read and try to understand. So let me encourage you before I read this, listen to the whole thing. 
listen to all of this this morning. And I believe that what you're going to find at the end is a God who is gracious and good to His people. Listen to the whole thing and listen to it properly. Listen to it as people receiving word from God. People who should not sit in judge, in judgment of God, but should receive from Him and listen to Him. Listen to the whole thing. Listen to it humbly. So with that, let me read the passage for this morning. Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 through 30. 13 to the end of the chapter. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity, and yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife, he may not divorce her all his days." But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman because she did not cry for help though she was in the city. And the man because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. You shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacked and murdered, murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Deuteronomy 22. The first half of chapter 22, which we saw last week, has these commands to individual people. You shall do this and you shall not do this. But then at verse 13, it changes back again to the when you encounter, when you come across, if this happens. So we're switching here again to case studies, which are not exhaustive, but are an attempt to lay out a basic framework, a groundwork. If this happens and this happens and this happens, you kind of get the picture of how God sees things. 
So we're dealing with a section here that's about particular cases, and they all revolve around sexuality. But if you look at them closely, they are particularly sexuality related to marriage. They are not just sexuality in the generic sense. There are all kinds of sexually immoral activities that are not mentioned here. The focus is on sex and marriage, the, the connection of those two things. So, if you're thinking about it, which piece of the moral law is this connected to? Seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Or positively stated, you shall keep the marriage bed pure and undefiled. These are civil laws for this particular people in this particular time and place in a time when they have a nation and they have a court system, which we don't. But they are an application of the moral law, which does speak to us. And so we have to look at this and read it and understand this has something to say to us today. But in order to understand it, we should probably clarify a few things about marriage and understand some of the context here. Because there is a culture that, for us, we read this, and right off, we read it through 21st century, most of us, Western world eyes. And there's a lot here that seems odd right off. So let's think a little bit about what marriage was back in the the time and the place in which this was written. And it's important because there's a culture that exists to which God's law is coming. And so it's going to address particular things there in that world. And we have to think about them to figure out, here's the culture, what does it say to this world? So in that day, in the eyes of that culture, realize marriage was largely a business arrangement. Not to say exclusively, but it was largely about business, a little bit of politics maybe. But fathers talked to each other, struck deals, and money changed hands. It's about business. Because it's also about building up families, which is about power and money. So we're in a different realm because most of us, we think of marriage right away as between and only between two consenting adults who have themselves decided to get married. And they have decided that primarily based on love or romance. We think that to marry for money is terrible. And that was common. Because money equals food equals life. It's a very different mindset. We need to get our minds around this. We're going to misunderstand some things. So the fathers are talking to each other and are desperately trying to marry off their kids well. They're trying to seek out and find a partner for their child, somebody who is financially stable, someone who is of excellent character, who is of of good repute, who is of some standing. They're all trying to do that. And and a critical, one piece of this is important, and a critical component, particularly for a woman, of character was physical purity. Which incidentally is consistent with the Bible. For both men and women. But the Bible supports that thinking. Now, there is a double standard at work in many cultures, even today, where it's more important in a lot of people's eyes for a woman. But the Bible says it's important for both men and women. Physical purity. See the word virginity mentioned constantly here. 
physical purity, an important indicator of the character of a woman and of her whole family who was supposed to be protecting her. When I say woman, think 13-year-old. Okay? Mary was probably 12 or 13 when she got married. 13, 14, 15, just after puberty. Then you enter into the marriageable age. These are young girls and young boys. And families, fathers are protecting them. And so to find someone who is not physically pure is to find a family that is of poor character. Someone you don't want to marry into. And that is so strong that to think about a woman who is not physically pure, the opportunities for marriage for her are very small. It's an important factor in this passage. In the eyes of many people in that day, in some way or another, a woman who was not physically pure was off limits, not of marriageable quality. And so, in verses 13 to 21, when for some unstated reason this new husband decides that he doesn't want to be married to his brand new wife, he hates her, it says, doesn't say why, but he hates her and he wants to get rid of her, He can't just, it's not permissible to just say, I divorce you, go away. He has to find a reason. He needs a good reason. And the one that leaps to his mind is the claim she wasn't a virgin. In other words, speaking to her father, her family, you lied. You sold me a bill of goods. And I'm using terms here that that are probably odd for us and we think about marriage as relational and about romance but think business i'm going to use business terms here you sold me a lemon that that's how it's going here you claimed this and i took it home and i found out this i want my money back he comes up with that idea because that will work in that culture He can't just say, go away, I don't want you. But he can claim breach of contract. And that's what he does. But the father, as was customary, you notice how it talks about he shall spread the cloak. Every father took the cloak, which is, think of the bed sheet of the wedding bed. Everybody did this. Take the cloak. Stained with a little bit of blood from the woman's body, indicating that she was a virgin on the wedding night. And he pulls out his evidence. I didn't sell you a lemon. Look. This is a legal proceeding before all the elders of the town. We have no way of thinking about this. (laughs) But that's what's going on. Look. Here's the evidence. You dirtbag. You're dragging my daughter and my family's name through the mud. Here it is. And they shall fine him a hundred shekels. He already paid fifty. Now a hundred more. And they shall whip him in public, which is shaming him. And he can't divorce her ever for any reason at all. And the shaming part, the whipping in public, is probably the worst thing. We, we don't work, we are not a shame honor culture. The United States is not, is not a shame on our culture, but many other cultures of the world are, and the worst thing imaginable is to be publicly shamed. So they publicly shame him, fine him, and now he is obligated to be married to this woman. Unless, of course, it's true. And the evidence isn't there. 
which case, verse 21, she is to be put to death at her father's door because he bears some responsibility. And we read that and we think, the death penalty for premarital sex? The death penalty for promiscuity? How in the world is that in the Bible? Now, I think a number of us, even if you don't agree, a number of us can conceive of the death penalty for something. We live in a, in a culture that, you know, it's the laws of this particular civil entity, the United States of America. We live in a culture where the death penalty is permissible for certain things. We can conceive of the death penalty for, say, murder. But it is inconceivable for us to think about the death penalty for premarital sex. And the fact that we ask the question says that we don't regard that as nearly as big of a deal as murder. We don't think it's that big of a problem. It does not warrant to that. To which the only answer is, humbly, God disagrees with you. Doesn't he? We work through this book and in different places, he's determining what the civil laws of that nation were to be and he's establishing the different penalties and he puts this on the same level. Same penalty. And I would suggest that we should conform our view to his rather than the other way around. Which is not to say that we then should begin executing people. We've got to remember this. We've talked about this constantly. We've got to remember that this is for a civil country, an entity that has courts and laws and the responsibility of carrying out sentences. In the New Covenant, we are not like that anymore. We do not have that responsibility. It has been given to civil governments like the United States, like the state of Utah, not to the church. We don't do that. But we do read this and we realize this is serious. In God's eyes, He regards this as serious. What do we do with it? Well, we're helped out by the little phrase at the end of the verse, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, which is repeated again in 22 and in 24. We've seen that a number of times throughout Deuteronomy. It's always attached to the death penalty, and we've done this several times, and we'll do it again today. It connects us to the New Testament, where that phrase is repeated, and it tells us what do we as the New Covenant community do with these things? We don't pass civil sentence. We don't execute people. What do we do with it? Ignore it? Move on? No, we do something different. We'll come to that later. But the death penalty is obviously prevalent in this passage in 21, 22, 24, when the cases of adultery come under consideration. And in each case, as well as in 25 to 27, the responsible parties, the responsible parties are punished with death. Adultery and sex that violates the marriage bond, sex that breaks the covenant of marriage in one way or another, sex that is disconnected from marriage, brings from God the death penalty. But that's not the case where the marriage bond doesn't exist, as in 28 and 29. There the penalty is different. Because the marriage covenant has not been broken. We see the same idea of marriage and sex together, but now it's in reverse. Rather than the 
the sex after the marriage. This is the sex that leads to marriage, which again makes us look at this and say, how can this be? This is essentially sexual assault. And what it's saying is that the, the criminal pays the bride price and a marriage has to happen? How cruel is that? You force the victim to marry the attacker? A little bit of context. If you look elsewhere in the law, which they had before this, same case is addressed, and there, he doesn't repeat it here, but there it is clear that the woman and father are not obligated to accept this marriage. They, they can say, absolutely not, the phrase is, utterly refuse. They can utterly refuse and still receive the financial compensation. So the attacker has to pay either way, and they can say no, but they might not want to say no. Because, remember the culture... In the eyes of everybody in her town, how is she going to be viewed now? I'm not saying this is good or right. I'm just saying this is reality. In the eyes of everybody in her town, she is now not in the marriageable category. So one of the terrible ramifications of this assault on her is not just the physical pain and not just the, the humiliation and the shame and all of that the attack causes, but the lifelong ramifications are that she is now probably condemned to abject poverty. This is wicked. So they might say, tragically, this is your only chance. Marry him and at least you'll be provided for. And we can look at other places, the previous chapter, where he is obligated to give to her and any children their proper portion of his inheritance. She will at least be eating for life. This is a clear case of God intervening into a sinful world to make omelets out of broken eggs to trivialize it. He's not in any way saying this should be what happens. He's just saying this happens. And I'm going to interject law into it to try to redeem the situation as best can be. To attempt to provide for her. Now, if her family says, no, we don't want any part of that, that's okay too. They can do that. But I'm going to create a situation where if they so choose, she can have a life and a chance at a livelihood. The man is financially obligated to her and can never divorce her, must stay married to her. Not ideal by any stretch. But God entering into a sinful world to provide for her by law, to give her an option if they would choose it. That's the text. Concentrated instruction on all kinds of different sexuality related to marriage creates a, a, a broad picture. Obviously, there would be many things that we could ask, well, what about this and what about that? This creates a a picture in which judges could then think through other situations. Let me try to summarize this by, by this sentence. 
God wants His people to be marked by sexual faithfulness and purity. God wants His people to be marked by sexual faithfulness and purity. And thankfully, He has given us means to bring that to pass. He wants His people to be marked by sexual faithfulness and purity. And He has given us means to bring that to pass. So, let's you know, break that in half and make two observations. First, what God's after, what God's trying to do, He has created... Here's the first observation... God has created sex for marriage. And He requires that we keep the two together. God created sex. Sexuality is His idea. The fact that we are sexual beings. He he created that. It's His idea. It's a good idea. He created sex for marriage and He requires then that we keep the two together. So let's put the obvious on the table and address it clearly. In keeping sex and marriage together, what that means is that God is against, strongly against, adultery. The separation of sex and marriage. The breaking of the marriage bond that is supposed to be one flesh joined bodily, two people joined to each other, one to another, and the separation of that to go join to someone else, the separating of sex and marriage, God is strongly against. In every one of these case studies, God commands and punishes so as to keep sex and marriage together. He stops the breaking of a marriage that has been physically consummated. He forbids and pronounces the death penalty and all kinds of adultery. Unmarried sexual partners are pushed towards the obligations and maybe even the status of marriage. Pushed towards it. Now, as I said, we'll come to we, we We deal with these things differently, but what we're seeing, the picture there, is that God has, a, has an idea. Sex and marriage belong together, and I'm going to create boundaries to hold them there. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Or in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Hebrews 13, 4. That's equally clear. New Testament, equally clear. Sex and marriage are created by God to be together. He requires the two be kept together. Men and women, this is a hard teaching. Get this. You read through here. God tells the court system to execute adulterers. And it does not matter if the offended spouse forgives him or her. Do you see that? It is not unless the wife forgives him, then don't execute him. It's execute him because fundamentally adultery is not a sin. Fundamentally is not a sin. It is not an offense against a spouse or against children. It is against God. It breaks his covenant and brings the death of his curse. 
Why? Why is this sin against God? I said a lot more about this in the sermon on the seventh commandment proper last summer. I would encourage you, if you want to think more about this, go go listen to that. It's online. You can get it easily. But essentially, the the reason that, that God is the one who is first and foremost the offended party is that what adultery does is it ruins God's intention, God's design for sex and marriage to serve as a pointer. God designed sex and marriage together to serve as a pointer towards what the covenant between Christ and His church is like. Elaborate on it back then. I'm just going to throw out some things and think about this. Genesis 2, Ephesians 5. What's the connection there? Christ and the church. Husband and wife. There's the parallel. The the marriage covenant between the husband and wife. The marriage covenant between Christ Christ and the church. God designed these things to be pointers. to, To show so that you can look at sex in marriage and you can see Christ and the church. And it is, it's uniquely doing that. There's something very unique in sex and marriage that's totally different than just two friends. I mean, we, we can have friends that are, we might call them bosom buddies, and you know, you're, you're tight with somebody. Totally different than the intimacy you share with a spouse in sex. Or you can sleep with somebody that you met at a bar. That night, you can, I mean, you... People meet people at bars, marry them, and whatnot. But you can you can sleep with somebody casually. I talked to somebody just recently who did that, so I'm qualifying. Um, you can sleep with somebody casually, and that is totally different than the intimacy of sex and marriage. Sex and marriage together says something very profound because it touches us everywhere. It's physical. It's intellectual. It's emotional. In the deepest parts of your soul, it does something. It says something to you. There is a place where naked and not ashamed happens. Where the two become one. Where love is known. And this other person does not throw you out when you begin to sag or get old or lose a step. They don't leave you when the newest, hottest model comes along. They're faithful all through life. And it tells you something as you experience that. It tells you something. This is what Christ and the church is supposed to be like. I see it. And it even calls out to you because when you experience that, the moment of intimacy in marriage, it's, it's like, ah, but not quite. Because it fades. There's a moment... It passes. You all know this. I mean, think a little bit about this. It's okay to think about sex in church. It's okay to say that word in church. God designed it. It's good by God's design. Parents might need to explain some of this to children later. That's totally fine. It's totally fine. We shouldn't be ashamed of this. But think about it for a second. There's a moment when you're there, then you're not. You're there, so you know there's somewhere to be. And then you're not. 
And you want to be there, but you can't be. It's calling out to you. Not just physically, not just intellectually, not only in your soul, but all through you. It's calling out to you. There is some place where naked and not ashamed exists, abiding in an abiding nature. And what adultery does is it rips that apart and destroys God's attempt to speak that message. But it's a sin against Him and against His design, against His plan, and so He is bothered by it. It's not just against your spouse. It's primarily against Him. God created sex and marriage to be together, and He requires that we keep them there. So sit under this for a moment. Is God talking to you? Is there something in your life that needs to come to light? Some way that you have separated sex and marriage? Maybe in straightforward adultery. I don't know everybody here. I don't know everything about the people that I do know who are here. And I don't know who's going to listen to this someday. But the odds are that somebody is listening to this right now in adultery. Physically, in adultery. Is it you? Is God talking to you? Is He prodding you, convicting you? Or maybe you're not participating in sex outside of marriage, but rather sex before marriage. Dishonoring and defiling the marriage bed in that way. Is that you? Separating it in a different way, which God regards as just as serious. May God bring a holy conviction of sin to your heart, even right now as you listen. And may He do so also in the hearts of all the rest of us adulterers. Deuteronomy 22, Hebrews 13 are pretty clearly talking about physical, sexual adultery. And a number of us, I imagine, have managed to avoid that. And we could say, I guess he's not talking to me. But I think all of us would have a hard time claiming innocence before Jesus in Matthew 5. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery in places like Deuteronomy 22. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Men, lusting and longing in their minds. Women, lusting and longing in their minds. It might take on different flavors given our gender, but it's, it's the common thing is longing for intimacy with somebody else that you are not married to. Maybe you wish you were, you hope to one day be, but you aren't. Single people can commit adultery all by themselves in your minds. 
And as Jesus continues, as he continues to point out, such lusting and longing is enough in itself to send us to hell, which is what the death penalty is about in Deuteronomy 22, trying to show in the clearest of all possible ways that breaking this covenant with God brings loss of everything. So we have a huge problem. It may take on different bents in each one of us. Maybe some of us have a problem of right now there is another person in your mind. But all the rest of us, there have been other people in our eyes and minds. We have a huge problem. And so I call you in the name of Christ, repent. That is, throw it away in your heart. Turn. Throw away adultery of all sorts in your mind right now as you sit there. Physical, mental, repent. Turn from it right now in your heart. May He convict and grieve you towards repentance. And if you are grieved towards repentance... Then, right there at that point, and, and only at that point, grieved towards repentance, at that point then, turns, take heart in the gospel of grace. Now, I'm walking a fine line here because I want to be very careful. Because I want to equally clearly trumpet the gospel of grace. We sang about this constantly this morning. And I want to be very clear that He wipes sin away. But I also want to be very careful to not heal the people lightly as God chastised His prophets for doing. Oh, you sin, but it's okay. God will forgive it. You see that the tension that I'm struck with here the gospel of grace is true and real, and I must not let you be healed lightly. Just blow right by it and say, well, yeah, but thank goodness I'm forgiven. At the point that you are grieved to repentance, then you lift up in front of your eyes the cross and say, bless God. Bless God that He has sent His Son to remove from me the wrath due to covenant breakers like myself. And it means remove, not just cover over. Nathan's picture was great this morning. When the snow all melts, are going to be the rotting leaves there left underneath, aren't there? But what the gospel does is it removes it. It's not there anymore. Grieve towards repentance, then turn in hope. Be like David after Bathsheba. Confronted by the prophet Nathan, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. Not Uriah. Took his wife and killed him. But it's not Uriah that I've sinned against. I have sinned against the Lord. And God's word to him, next, next sentence, the Lord also has put away your sin. Bless God for that. That's the gospel of grace to those who are broken in their sin. And if that's you this morning, 
If that's you this morning, then I have to plead with you and encourage you and ask you and invite you, come to the Gospel. Come to Jesus crucified and be forgiven, wiped clean. And if it's not you yet, the Gospel's not for you, the law still is. You're guilty. There, there is an answer. There is a hope. Repent and come to Christ. This is why God sent His Son to the earth. To take on a body because we have bodies. So He could die the death that we were supposed to die. So that He could remove the wrath that is supposed to fall on us. And He will take it from you if you trust Him. God created sex for marriage and He requires that we keep the two together, which we have not done, but must. And when we have not done it, He provides a means to cleanse us, but more than that, He provides a means to enable us to keep the two together tomorrow and the next day and the day after. So the second point is about God gives means not just to wipe sin away, but to enable us to deal with it and avoid it. So God created sex and marriage to be together. It requires that we keep them together. And so then the second observation is we should do then. Embrace God's provided means for our holiness and for avoiding defilement. Embrace God's provided means. And there are two of them that I'm going to touch on here this morning. Two means that He has provided to enable us to fight against this defile and to avoid it. To keep marriage and sex together. Two of them, and they're kind of like, they're kind of layered. One of them comes right out of the text, and then one of them comes out of the text that comes out of this text. The first one, the repeated phrase in 21, 22, 24, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, which has been repeated throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Here in the civil law, it's talking about the, how the government is supposed to execute people. The system of law. But that points us forward, as we have seen before, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and, and just look at that. We're going to skip through that rather quickly. But we need to be clear about it because this is the first means that we are to embrace. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church to help them deal with an assortment of problems and issues, to help them avoid the defilement and to help them deal with trouble, and etc. And in 5.1, he addresses a particular sin and a problem they've been dealing with. It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, which is exactly the last verse of Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22.30, a man shall not take his father's wife. That's the situation going on in Corinth. You can see how it triggers something in Paul's mind. It's the same sin. Probably not his mother, probably his stepmother in some way or another, He's taken his stepmother 
And so Paul knows, that's Deuteronomy 22.30, and notice how Paul does not think, well, the law has nothing to say to me anymore. He goes to that chapter and teaches it to the New Testament church. What does he say? Let him who has done this, end of verse 2, be removed from among you, purged from your midst. How? By stoning? No. As he elaborates, this man is to be removed, purged from their midst, by what we call church discipline. It's our our phrase, not actually in the passage. It's our phrase that describes this whole process of which Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, gets just the the final step laid out there. Verse 9, he continues, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not the sexually immoral of this world, verse 11. I mean not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or any of this other stuff there in the the verse. Not even to eat with such a one. Those inside the church are the ones we are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Again, quoting the repeated phrase from Deuteronomy. He has Deuteronomy and especially chapter 22, on his mind here as he addresses the same situation in the New Testament church. So what do we do then to fight defilement and the sin among us? Well, we do what he taught the church to do. We follow the process of church discipline. And I'm going to preach specifically on that when we come back to Deuteronomy after Easter. But just a little bit this morning, I'm going to point out that this is a process and Paul only has the final step. And the key ingredient for the final step is open, unrepentant sin in someone who claims to sit in the pew and be a Christian in fine standing. Those are the two things that cannot go together. So, so don't think, I'm talking the first point there, I'm, I'm talking about sin and, and well, I can't ever mention that now because they're going to throw me out of the church. No, that's not true. The only person who's separated from the church is the person who sits there in the pew and says, this is what I'm doing, this is who I am, and it's fine, and I'm a Christian. No. That must be set out. It must be set aside. Calculated evil and saying that you're a fine, upstanding, good-standing Christian is inconsistent and has to be separated by church discipline. That's the first means that we have to embrace. And as I said, I'm going to talk more about that later. In a few weeks from now. It's a good thing though. Think through what this is. It's a good thing. It works to protect the community. It's integrity. It works to curtail the spread of sin. By saying, that's wrong. We don't accept that. We don't allow it to spread and be taken on by other people. It's helpful. Just like law is. And at that point... Maybe there's a little problem triggering in your mind. Just like law is. Because if this is the only means, it works a lot like law does. Here's what you shouldn't do. And if you do that, we're going to punish you by throwing you out. If that's all it is, it's working just like law. But wait a minute. That's not what the New Testament's about. The mechanism of changing a person by law, threat of punishment. 
What's the problem here? There's got to be some other means, some second thing. There is. But we don't throw the law out here. We don't, we don't throw out this, this discipline process. It creates a context in which the second thing might happen. It's how all discipline works. If you're a parent, you're in the kitchen cooking, and you hear the kids tearing into each other down the hall in one of the bedrooms, you don't stand there and say, that's a heart problem. They are selfish. They are not preferring others and loving others and laying down their life for others. And as I hear them tearing into each other, I'm just going to stand here and pray for God to change their hearts and keep cooking. That's not all that you do, even though it is a heart problem, and that is what must happen. It's not all that you do. What do you do? You walk down the hallway and you spank somebody. I'm oversimplifying that, but, but you, you, you involve yourself. You, you step into it as the authority and you say, what's going on? And you try to sort it out and protect an innocent party if there is one. Right, right the wrongs that have been made, figure out who did what, level some sort of a punishment against that, a discipline of it. Ideally, if you do it well, when I do it well, which is not always, when I do it well, I then talk through with the people involved, why did this happen? And I point out the heart problem in it. You know why you've got a fight develop here? What does James 4 say? The reason that you're fighting is that you want something and you can't get it. This is a heart problem. It's not that Junior's pushy. You have a heart problem. I point that out, but I can't make the heart problem change. I can make some degree of peace, and I can make him stop punching her. And I will, in the hope that what's really necessary can then happen. We don't throw out the discipline. We move beyond it. And church discipline actually includes that. If you're looking at 1 Corinthians 5, you notice, let me see if I can find the exact verse here, Somewhere verses 4, 5, 6, 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It is not just throw him out and walk away. It's throw him out with a purpose that the flesh in him might be destroyed. The sinful nature in him might be destroyed. Not by Satan. Satan does not destroy people's tendencies towards sin. He fuels them and grows them and enhances them. Paul's saying, take this man out of the protection and the warm, cozy atmosphere of the church community and put him out in the world. And perhaps, prayerfully, in the school of hard knocks, God will do a work on him that will crucify his flesh change him on the inside towards his salvation. That's the real goal. Not just a punishment. You did something wrong, I'm going to slap you. No, the real goal is a heart change. The death of his flesh, the destruction of his flesh. By God, not by Satan. Satan doesn't do that. That's that's the real goal. That's the means within the means. So we we don't throw out church discipline, 
But we are careful not to use it as if it is a New Testament law. We use church discipline to give us a context to embrace the other means that God provides to enable us to avoid defilement. Renewal of the heart. The death of the flesh. Same thing, expressed in opposite ways. So, think just a second about that. How does that happen? How does renewal of the heart happen? Tons of places we could, we could go. I'll cite my favorite one. What was probably one of my favorite ones. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Jot that down and look at it. It is a marvelous thing. You think about what he says there. We are beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into His image bit by bit. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed to be like Him little by little by little by little. And the last sentence, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Who makes that happen? Who enables me, struggling with sin, to see the glory of the Lord and be changed in the heart? God does by His Spirit. He opens eyes. He renews the heart. He changes us on the inside so that we become different people. And how does He do that? By showing us Christ. As we behold His glory, we're changed. So apply this now to sexual sin. We chase sex. Think about the purpose of sex and marriage. We chase sex because of what sex is near to. Intimacy. An intimacy that captures us and touches us in every part of our being. Sex by God's design, sex in marriage is the closest thing to it. But we get it all confused and we chase all kinds of relationships and sex in all kinds of contexts because we never quite find what we're looking for. So we think, maybe it's in this kind of sex. Maybe it's with that kind of person. Maybe it's in this sort of relationship. And we chase and chase and chase because the thing that we're looking for is actually not there. It's being pointed to. There's a great quote. I can't remember if I've shared it in the sermon or not before, but listen to this quote. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is looking for God. I'd cite who said that if I could remember. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is looking for God. He's chasing sex because he's actually chasing what sex is closest to in the world. But it's not quite close enough. It's a shadow. And the obsession with the shadow will only pass when we behold the fullness of the reality that casts the shadow in the first place. Christ Himself, the One for whom our souls were made, the One that 
It is the intimate one that we're looking for. And no degree of punishment or thou shalt not shall ever provide that. But the Spirit can. The Spirit can and will provide for you inside communion with this one that you're looking for. There is going to come a day. There's going to come a day when we'll be in glory, Christian, when you'll be in glory and sex will pass away and marriage will pass away. Jesus taught that in Matthew 22, I think. No, there's no sex and there's no marriage in heaven. Why? Because the reality's there. The thing it's pointing to has shown up. And in that day we will be full. Finally, not, not searching anymore. But the beauty of it is now that the Spirit communicates Him to us today. He can communicate God to you today in your heart. He can show you the glory of Christ. You can see Him and be changed. And the searching can end. You find Him. I know I'm crashing a lot of things together here at the end, but the point is, he means for us to, to be a people of purity and faithfulness in, in the sexual area of our lives because of what it's pointing to. And He thankfully has provided means for that to happen. The process of church discipline, but within the process of church discipline, the thing that we most need is for God the Spirit to move in and shine Christ into our hearts. He's the one we're really looking for. So what do you do? You turn to the Spirit and say, Take me. Would you please take me and show me Christ? Spirit, take up your sword and circumcise my heart again. Show me Christ with this book, Spirit. That's how He moves you to follow His decrees and fulfill the righteousness of the law, not by those who walk according to the law or the spirit or the, or the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. Let me pray. God, I ask You to come upon us as a people and fill us with Your Spirit to show us the glory of Christ to change us on the inside. But when you do that, when you move into us and change us on the inside and give us communion with yourself, that's what puts our sexual lives in order. The searching ends. We found you. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, 
Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.